Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, it's Ben. This is episode 224 of A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. And thank you very much for joining me. And uh, if you're new here, then um, where you been? You, I've been doing this since 2015. You've missed uh, a lot of episodes. You've got some catching up to do. Uh, that's just on the assumption that um, some people might be here for the first time to listen to my chat with Edward Batinsky, who um, probably needs no introduction, but will get one nevertheless. Uh, so please hang on with me. Um, I've got to do a little bit of housekeeping and some ad reads, which, of course, are all important uh, in the sense that um, without them, we wouldn't have a small voice conversation with photographers. And um, yeah, and then I will introduce Edward as uh, is customary after that. So first of all, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Capture One Pro, the professional photo editing software for every photographer that allows you to shoot, edit and collaborate wherever you find yourself from the most controlled studio environment to the unpredictability of the open road. Capture One's powerful, easy to use set of tools feature true to life colours and superb image quality, lightning fast tethered shooting, speedy and smart shortcuts and an on the go workflow for both desktop and iPad. And Capture One Live makes remote collaboration, both for getting feedback in real time and post-shoot faster and easier. Free to use, collaborators can access images and leave feedback from any device. Whatever stage you're at in your photographic trajectory in 2024, you can tell your best stories yet and bring your vision to life with Capture One Pro. Try it out yourself for 30 days for free at CaptureOne.com and get an exclusive, very significant 30% discount on the yearly all-in-one subscription using the coupon code a small voice 24 at checkout so a small voice in caps and then the digits 24 so this chat that i had with edward batinsky we did last week at the satchi gallery here in london where opening on the very day that this episode is released is a huge show the biggest that ed has ever had and uh, that is entitled extraction slash abstraction and um so yeah, we talked a little bit about that, and I uh, had the privilege of having a little preview of the show. Um, I think I'm the first person to see it who doesn't actually work at the Satchi Gallery or wasn't one of the people actually putting the thing up, so that was a bit of a an honour, and um, I, I can tell you it's pretty spectacular. So if you are in or around London, um, hopefully you'll be, get a chance to go and have a look at it at some point between now and May 2024. And if you're not in London, if you're elsewhere in the world, it will be going uh, other places. So yeah, you can keep an eye out for it. Anyway, um, that little bit where I had a walk round, um, I did record Ed sort of basically talking me through some of the images and um, you know asking some additional questions. And that will um, be exclusive content for my member-only edition of A Small Voice. So as I'm always saying, if you want to support the ongoing production of this podcast and get a whole bunch of additional exclusive member-only content, then you can do that by signing up for £5 a month as a full member at pod.fan. And I'm always telling you to go to pod.fan, but then I realised there's no link at pod.fan. My God, that's been a bit of a useless piece of uh, instruction for, for a while now. But basically, if you 
Google pod.fan and then a small voice. It will just pop straight up. So pod.fan, a small voice. And the other option you now have is to become a an archive-only member. So just to explain very briefly, for those of you who are still a bit confused about this, only the 50 most recent episodes of the podcast are on the free public feed. The rest, which is now 200 plus episodes, are on their own subscriber-only feed, and that is also to be found at pod.fan, and that one is £3 a month to, to access all the previous episodes. So again, Google pod.fan, a small voice, and then the word archive, and then that one will pop up too. Don't worry, we're, we're figuring all this stuff out, so it will become a lot easier, but um, I just wanted you t- to all know about that. So my other little chat with um, Ed will go out um, the week after this one on the member-only podcast. We normally do what are known as the bonus questions, but if there's a show to be uh, looked around, then I like to try and do that instead. And that is indeed what I did with Ed. So Small Voices sponsored by PicTime, the advanced online gallery platform for photographers that combines flexible, beautiful client galleries for seamless photo delivery, customizable layouts, built-in slideshows, a full blogging feature and client-specific print shops with powerful marketing automation tools to help you maximize your revenue. New for 2024, PicTime is now available as a mobile app. Access your galleries on the go, find what you need, post directly to social media, improve your client experience, select and download images from the app and save them directly to your device. You can find and install the PicTime app in the EOS App Store and Google Play Store and you can try PicTime yourself completely free for 30 days by signing up for a trial period at pic-time.com. Enter the code of small voice to get an exclusive bonus month when upgrading to any PicTime paid plan. Elevate your photos and build a successful business with PicTime, the all-in-one platform to deliver, share and sell your prints. That's pic-time.com. Okay, the other thing I wanted to let you know about before we proceed, and I um, do a bio for Ed Bedinsky, is that uh, as you, well, most of you will know, a lot of you will know, um, one of the other things I do is build uh, Squarespace websites for people, um, which I have done many times, um, often for photographers like your good selves or people um, you know, with a kind of creative practice. I'm about to introduce a brand new thing, which is a video course. So you can sign up for that course on my website and get access to uh, a series of videos that will teach you how to build yourself a Squarespace website so that you can learn how to do it yourself, save yourself uh, a bunch of money um, uh, for, by not having to pay anyone to do it for you and uh, l- learn something very useful. So um, there is a special offer going on that at the moment. Uh, you can sign up for an early bird deal at benswithphoto.com course and I will send you a special discount link. If you are interested in that course, um, the discounted price is 97 quid and the full price will be 150. So if you want to get the special deal and get an exclusive six month trial period on your Squarespace website, then go to bensmithphoto.com course and just uh, put your email in there so that I can send you the discount code. There is no obligation. You're just getting a code in case you want to use it. Okay, let me do the bio 
for Edward Batinsky. Uh, this is essentially from his own website, but I have abridged it somewhat just uh, for brevity, although it's still long because he's done a lot. So um, anyway, here it is. Edward Batinsky is regarded as one of the world's most accomplished contemporary photographers. His remarkable photographic depictions of global industrial landscapes represent over 40 years of his dedication to bearing witness to the impact of human industry on the planet. Edward's photographs are included in the collections of over 80 major museums around the world, including the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa, the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Guggenheim Museum in New York, the Reina Sophia Museum in Madrid, the Tate Modern in London, and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in California. Edward was born in 1955 of Ukrainian heritage in St. Catharines, Ontario. He received his BAA in photography slash media studies from Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson University, in 1982, and has since received both an Alumni Achievement Award and an Honorary Doctorate from his alma mater. He's still actively involved in the university community and sits on the board of directors for the Image Centre, formerly Ryerson Image Centre. In 1985, Edward founded the Toronto Image Works, a darkroom rental facility, custom photo laboratory, digital imaging and new media computer training centre catering to all levels of Toronto's art community. Early exposure to the General Motors plant and watching ships go by in the Welland Canal in Edward's hometown helped capture his imagination for the scale of human creation and to formulate the development of his photographic work. His imagery explores the collective impact we as a species are having on the surface of the planet, an inspection of the human systems we've imposed onto natural landscapes. Exhibitions include Anthropocene at the Art Gallery of Ontario and the National Gallery of Canada, International Touring Exhibition, Water at the New Orleans Museum of Art and Contemporary Art Centre in Louisiana, also a Touring Exhibition, Oil at the Corcoran Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., five-year international touring show, China, which also toured internationally, manufactured landscapes at the National Gallery of Canada, also toured, and Breaking Ground, produced by the Canadian Museum of Contemporary Photography. Edward's visually compelling works are currently being exhibited in solo and group exhibitions around the globe, including at London Saatchi Gallery, where his largest solo exhibition to date entitled Extraction Abstraction is currently on show until the 6th of May 2024. Edward's distinctions include the inaugural TED Prize, which he shared with Bono and Robert Fischel, the title of Officer of the Order of Canada and the International Centre of Photography's Infinity Award for Art. In 2018, Edward was named Photo London's Master of Photography and the Mosaic Institute's Peace Patron. In 2019, he was the recipient of the Arts and Letters Award at the Canadian Association of New York's annual Maple Leaf Ball and the 2019 Lucy Award for Achievement in Documentary Photography. In 2020, he was awarded a Royal Photographic Society Honorary Fellowship and in 2022 was honoured with the Outstanding Contribution to Photography Award by the World Photography Organisation. Most recently, he was inducted into the International Photography Hall of Fame and was named the 2022 recipient for the Annual Pollution Probe Award. Edward currently holds eight honorary doctorate degrees and is represented by numerous international galleries all over the world. So a bit of a slacker. Um, as you can tell from that bio. Now, one last ad before I continue. This episode of the podcast is supported by MPB, the largest global platform on which to sell your pre-loved used photo and video kit. The MPB price commitment provides the best valuation up front for all equipment with a dynamic pricing engine constantly analysing current market data and other price factors such as brand, age, popularity, model and condition of your unwanted equipment. Instant quotes are guaranteed for 14 days and MPB pays you for your camera straight away. What's more, if your gear turns out to be in better condition 
than expected. MPB will increase the amount they pay you for it. The average seller earns £700 each time they sell to MPB, and now you could get paid even more. Because camera bodies are currently in high demand, MPB has increased the amount you can get paid for yours. Avoid tedious negotiations, eBay seller fees and hidden costs, and realise the full value of your pre-loved unwanted camera or video equipment by sending to mpb.com the simple, safe and circular way to trade, upgrade and get paid for your kit. One last thing before Ed, because I thought this might be uh, an additional useful little thing for you to hear, which is a little statement that can be found on Ed's website uh, in the about section. So I'm just going to read this out. It's pretty short. Exploring the residual landscape. Nature transformed through industry is a predominant theme in my work. I set course to intersect with a contemporary view of the great ages of man, from stone to minerals, oil, transportation, silicon, and so on. To make these ideas visible, I search for subjects that are rich in detail and scale, yet open in their meaning. Recycling yards, mine tailings, quarries, and refineries are all places that are outside of our normal experience, yet we partake of their output on a daily basis. These images are meant as metaphors to the dilemma of our modern existence. They search for a dialogue between attraction and repulsion, seduction and fear. We're drawn by desire, a chance of good living, yet we're consciously or unconsciously aware that the world is suffering for our success. Our dependence on nature to provide the materials for our consumption and our concern for the health of our planet sets us into an uneasy contradiction. For me, these images function as reflecting pools of our time. So, yeah, just to reiterate, um, the, the show looked spectacular. It wasn't, um, well, it was all up, more or less. There were a couple of little extra things, and I'm going to go back and, and look at it properly. But um, in the meantime, uh, before uh, any of you get to see it, I hope you very much enjoy uh, this incredibly sort of illuminating and inspiring chat I had with Edward Patinsky. I'll try and ask questions that you yeah, might uh, How find. technical do you like to go uh, not really, not. Yeah, it's it's not really it's, about that. It's more, I mean, it's more uh, how you think it through. It. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of technique in my. There's a lot of technical in my work and the and the progression from analog to digital and the transformation of my of my practice from an analog to digital practice. And that would the, that would yeah. be interesting because yeah. I mean, obviously. That's a common theme in a way, because so many Everybody's people... Ha- yeah, anybody who's had got a few years on them has gone through that, right? And, and, and then there's the digital natives that never knew what analog was, and now they're kind of curious about it, going back to it a lot of the times. Exactly, so. yeah, yeah. And it does come up a lot, because, you know, they are, they are, you know, the audience are, they're practitioners, a lot of them. And um, that whole thing of, you know, the magic of, of analog and ha- our generation, you know, who sort of fell in love with the darkroom, and I've read about you, you know, discovering that process um you know it's very magical and 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 a lot of the younger generation are 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 working with film you know that the digital natives i suppose because they're curious about it and there's a romance to it i suppose i wasn't intending to start with this but your transition because because you know salgado all these people like yourself who were shooting you know film for so long uh and then made that leap you know when did you make the, the leap and what was your sort of thinking behind it was it all about very practical concerns uh, it was i only moved uh, you know when i move i only moved uh when w- what i was doing in digital was better than what i can do in film so i always made sure that my um 
you know, I did comparatives. And when I went to do aerial work, then then I, I realized that I could do more digitally than I could with analog. And that was really in 2006 was my transition. Right. Where And then I kind of hybrided for a while. Anything on the ground with tripod, I still shot 8x10, 4x5. And then, you know, if I went to aerial, then uh, helicopters and gyro stabilizers, then I went to digital. And I started with a 40 megapixel back in... Uh, 2006, Mm. a phase back. Right. So then you had the experience of being able to see immediately the results instead of having that uncertainty of shooting film and knowing that, you know, you've got to process it and all all that kind of stuff, which, which on the scale of things that you're doing, I guess, must have been a huge boom. Yeah, well, I was actually trying to shoot with my Linhoff 4x5 um, with holders out of a open door helicopter with a gyro stabilizer and when i put my and trying to put a holder in there and pull the slide and not have it get pulled out because you know i was i never wanted to shoot through plexiglass so whenever i shot out of a helicopter it was me strapped in with the door open or a door off mm. and then and then shooting so you know, this 20 pound four by five you know with a gyro stabilizer and then i couldn't see the image properly too the the rain the finder was kind of a rough yeah. estimate of, of maybe in that direction uh so it was just and then speed you know shooting shooting like four by five with 100 asa film five six f-stop of five six and i'm at one one twenty fifth and and that doesn't work aerially mm. so i was just up against a kind of a and i like shooting in in, in that the shoulder light i don't like some subject I do full sun, but a lot of times it's shoulder evenings or morning, you know, before you get full on light or at least some overcast, and and that meant a, a slower shutter speed. Hmm. So so when I then got a digital camera, then I wasn't you know changing roles all the time. I had a chip, so I can do you know maybe three or four hundred shots before I have to tip, put a new chip in. Yeah, um, and um, and so I can shoot you know more aggressively when i see something that's looking good because interestingly when you're doing aerial work um you can't go back you know you, when you're you're there in that spot whether it's a helicopter or whatever it's very hard to return to the spot where you know you think the shot all came together yeah, and even if you tell the pilot to go around you know and try and find it again it's never the same. So I realized that every shot has to be usable and you want to do a fair amount in the mm-hmm. area, in the zone of where you think the image is. And then it's funny when you start looking and comparatively, one always seems to emerge as the the composition. And the idea being that I'm trying to work in this kind of moving tripod, uh, uh, I call it my ultimate tripod, a helicopter or a fixed wing aircraft, but making it look as if I took the shot with an 8x10 camera on a tripod yeah. in, a, in a studied kind of, you know, contemplative way, mm. but it's but it's not. It's mm. a complete insane kind of wind blowing, things flying all over the place, trying to bark out, you know, commands to the pilot: go up, down, crab backwards, crab forwards, you know, drop, go another hundred feet up. You know, all these things: go left, go right. You know, mm. and, and making sure that you get yourself in alignment with with the picture you're trying to make. So, yeah. um, so it was a. So yeah, those those are very practical considerations, and and it's amazing, really, in a way that you you sort of held out until two thousand and six, given the sort of scale of the work that you do and the and the logistical challenges and all that. But but aside from the practical stuff, where do you stand on the sort of debate about the aesthetic and whether film has some sort of you know very sort of 
particular magical kind of quality to it do you buy into that argument at all you you spent so many years with film you must have a, a, an idea on that uh, there is i mean at first when i first started using it i didn't like the digital look so and they didn't have filters at the time so you know when you're digital you're you're shooting a pixel grid you know and whereas silver halide is is more of stochastic it's, it doesn't have a uh, you know a, a grid pattern so when i was when you looked at highlights you know in in um you know, in, in digital, I could see that there's something wrong with them. And then uh, before, in the, in, in the 2006, what I did is I, I created a, a piece of orange mask. So I took the film that I liked, which is a, a Kodak VC100. It was a, a 100 ASA film. And then I just shot something perfectly gray. And then uh, and then on, on the orange mask of film, I just and then I took and removed the highlight and removed the shadow brought it to just the grain. So it was just a grain layer of the film. And then I laid the grain layer of, of that and play, placed it on a layer on my digital file, which then made it feel more analog. Mm-hmm. And now you can get those files, you can get those grain uh, kind of generators um, that, that, that I didn't have to make my own, but back then I made my own. So now, wow. so now it, it, you know, I'm doing a digital file, but I'm giving it an analog feel because I'm applying a kind of this stochastic grain mm. to a grid, basically, which is what... And now when you're actually working in, like, the phase 150 megapixel, you know, that is rivaling, you know, what an 8x10 camera now is. So when I'm up there with that phase, I feel like it's it's equal to an 8x10 camera mm. in terms of the density of information that I'm getting. There's something different, uh, though, in the way it renders... Um, tonal like mm. the tonal rendition that you know there's something about the analog you know capture and the amount of data that you've got on an eight by ten piece of film uh, i remember seeing once a, a, a test where it took all the formats it was like one 35 millimeter uh two and a quarter four by five eight by ten eleven by fourteen it was exact same vase exact same light just shot with exact same film just shot with the different formats and it's the trend and it was a vase you know from a bright white to a dark shadow and it was just like a beautifully you know like almost a renaissance vase lighting kind of and when you went to the 8 by 10 and 11 by 14 what happened is that the, the creaminess of, of 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 that you know light the way it wrapped around the vase it becomes fully dimensional whereas it's it loses it in 35 it just feels almost like cardboardy you know mm-hmm. and so that's when I really realized what is the big format, you know, eight by ten giving me, and, and and then when you think about it, a thirty-five, when you do a contact sheet, it's eight by ten. It's the whole roll yeah. of film to make one picture, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of data in huge there, amount, yeah. a huge amount of data in there. Um, so I, so in that kind of capture, that smoothing out of tonal gradation, I don't see as um, yeah, as good in digital as I did in the eight by ten days, mm-hmm. but in the actual articulation of detail and the sharpness, because what's happening is you're now you know capturing on a a, a pixel grid, you know, so it's a digital grid, and and now I'm printing on an Epson printer, so that what's what's completely disappeared is light hitting a series of layers you're no longer going like a, a film has like 18 layers in mm-hmm. it, you know to get to get your 
CMY and and, all, and there's layers between it and the mask layers. And so when light hits it, there's a dispersion as it's going through to hit the back layers. It's, it's, it's kind of spreading. And then when you go on to analog paper through an enlarger, you're doing that yet again. You're going through and, and it's, it's a kind of dispersion of light. Now it's like you're capturing the light almost pinpoint like and then you're printing it you know, stochastically with an Epson printer back onto paper. So there's almost, you know, all of that light dispersions kind of disappeared. And now, and now you're into this kind of crystalline kind of detail that I, you could never get in analog. Mm. So there you, so you give up certain things. And I do like that detail mm. when you, you know, anybody experiencing my big prints. And that's the thing is that, you know, if, if you see my work on online or on my on, on your phone, God forbid, but that's not telling you anything about what's going on in the picture. But if you even get a, a, a book or if you get a, a bigger screen on your, uh, you know, it's maybe a one or two meg file that you're going to see on a full, you know, on your laptop, you know, as an eight by ten image, let's say, on your laptop, it's still not going to give you the experience. When you go to see the prints, is where, you know, the the kind of texture of uh, of the thing itself becomes present mm -hmm. and to me that's that kind of you know the reason why i feel like to, to understand the work you have to be in the presence of it so yeah. it's not like you can just consume it online or you can consume it on your phone it, 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 there's a reason to go to a gallery exhibition to see it because it's all about that i mm -hmm. shoot to that experience of the print on the wall and everything else even my steidel books are a surrogate experience to the actual real experience of the print because there's that second reading when you put your face you know six inches or a foot away from the print and you start to read that image in a way that we don't ever actually experience reality and that's one thing photography i think can do right yeah it's very intrinsic to it to everything you're about in a way and you know we all talk about now like you say you know people looking at images on one of those <laughs> phones it was quite depressing at the best of times but for someone like you it's like it's, it's kind of in anathema really that you know you want it's all about that scale yeah. and uh i guess you know this this show that you've that's about to open is um the perfect format as it were for you the the ultimate expression of of what you're about you know but we'll kind of come back to that but yeah i mean on on the subject of of this exhibition um I guess, you know, I wanted to ask you how you're feeling about it or when it's the, the build-up to everything. Um, do you quite enjoy this part of the process in a way? Well, I mean, for me, um, because of what I've been doing and, 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 and the ideas I'm, that I'm... The idea sandbox that I'm playing in, mm. I think is... is um, kind of pretty meaningful for the time we're in you know like what is it that we're doing to the planet and, and so for 40 years i've been kind of asking myself that question you know what happens when humanity goes on to an exponential curve of growth a population growth with a technology in hand um and that will keep getting better and bigger uh and the scale of what we, we what we're doing will get bigger as well because we now have eight billion people and growing so it was asking the question, you know, are we on a, a trajectory that is, that is a troubling trajectory? You know, is, it, is this a viable or possible? Or are we outside of a possibility that what, what we're doing is we're running up against limitations of, of planetary limitations, mm -hmm. oceanic limitations, you know, what we do to the atmospheric limitations, you know, uh, 
you know, biodiversity and plant and animal limitations and when we start, you know, choking them out. Um, and that, I've been asking that question for 40 years and yeah. looking at human expansion. So, um, you know, here we are now where we're, we're starting to feel the limitations. You know, we're starting to see what happens when we put too much CO2 in the atmosphere. We see, we're seeing what's happening to, when we're overfishing the oceans and having fisheries collapse. And we're seeing what happens when we push back too many wetlands and prairies and forests. And now we have, you know, what is it now? A mammalian biomass, um, you know, of all outside of humans, like, there's like 4% of mammalian biomass in, in all of nature. And, 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 you know, 96% is now biomass that we manage the cows the pigs and the sheep and all of that so so we've really flipped you know uh, things around on the planet in the last mm. you know in, in largely in my generation you know, yeah in the last you know since the war so since the war. in a way you've sort of inadvertently documented this kind of impending catastrophe i mean like when you started it in a way i guess when you became aware of the environmental sort of element uh, angle to things it was a sort of warning for the future and now we're in that future and it's not looking all that great i mean how do you how do you stay i don't know if you do but how do you manage to stay optimistic or, or positive are you you still making this work in the hope that you know it'll have some kind of small impact on the way that people think about you know sustainability does it get depressing well, I think I kind of passed that window 20 years ago where I was depressed and realized that, well, that's not going to get you anywhere or, or feeling the grief of where is this all going, particularly after I just had, you know, two daughters and they were young and I'm thinking of their future. And it was daunting. And, and I was at the time, you know, 20, I first went to Bangladesh in 2020. So that's now 24 years ago. Mm. And then and then 2021, 2022, I went to China. And after four years of photographing China, looking the, at the scale of what they were, you know, firing up the manufacturing scale of, of, um, of China and the, you know, the, the pollution that was coming from that and the degradation of, of their landscape was, you know, daunting. I'm going, oh, my God, like, you know, the, you know, and, you know, in many ways producing stuff that they had no idea how we were consuming it, but making, you know, cheap stuff for us. So consumer goods, whether it's the stuff we buy in Walmart or, you know, our, our, our local, you know, stores, you know, you know, all coming from China, but... We're not seeing the consequence of what's happening in their backyard, which mm. is all those all that pollution was going into their rivers, into their air, and um, you know. And so, was looking at that, going, you know, how how does this, you know, how does this play out? You know, I was already seeing the kind of troubling, and and to make it all powered up and to power up China, it was. Yes, I went and photographed the the um, Three Gorges Dam and the other big you know dams on the Yangtze River that were being built, but most of the power was coming from coal power plants, mm. and um, and they were building a new one was coming on you know once every two weeks was a new plant you know new coal power and and those things have a life of fifty years, mm. built you know burning coal on a level that is you know frightening when you start seeing how much coal gets burned in a day in a thousand megawatt you know power plant. Um, so, so I'm looking at that going, you know, how do, 
how do we get out of this? You know, how, you know, but I think you move through grief and then and then ultimately understanding that, you know, in, in the stages of grieving, you, you land on meaning. You know, I'm going to try and make meaning out of this. I'm going to try and find a way to, to positively convert you know, you know, what I've learned or what I felt into something that, uh, you know, can help others kind of understand the scale of the issue. So going back to your question of, do I like this sort of thing? Or I, I don't mind it. I don't mm -hmm. mind speaking to media. I don't mind, you know, presenting my work to the public because I think there's a real, um, there's, a, there, there's a role that I think photography can still play in bearing witness to the places that we would never go to on our own mm. and, the, and and in the film the documentary films which are also being you know shown during this time at, at bfi so the three films you know, anthropocene the human epoch watermark and manufactured landscapes are all going to be shown <clears throat> next week or in the next few weeks uh, starting on the 15th at bfi and it's really extending the frame of, of the still and moving it into the in motion picture and documentary. So mm. I've, I've played in that field as well. And, uh, and I think that also <clears throat> really tells a story in, an, in, an, in a way that really helps people come to terms or at least understand and feel uh, the issue. Mm. Rather, and so I think if you come at people emotionally, to understand it through their, you know, kind of, you know, through through their kind of heart first, and then, and then intellectually, you know, they can process it, and, and I think it's a more meaningful kind of way to, to to deliver the issues and the problems than, you know, the traditional, you know, you know, here's the story and it's all negative, and and, and it's I'm going to lead you through how you're going to experience what you're seeing and i tell you what you're going to be seeing mm. I, I i don't like that as a, as a as a way to, of approaching the viewer to come in and, and and experience the work i want them to feel it first mm. and then to start to think about well what does this mean i'm not telling you it's good or bad because there's good in it too yeah. and all these places you know these are all business as usual none of this is they, they, they say, you're, I'm a disaster landscape photographer. I am not. This is business as usual. These are all the places that we get the stuff every day. Yeah. The stuff that made this mic, the stuff that made the cup in this coffee, yeah. you know, <laughs> that made this phone. It's all coming from somewhere in nature. We just don't see it. No. So if it's a disaster, then from the moment you get up and open your eyes, everything you're seeing is a disaster. And then when you sit down and eat, that's a disaster too because it's the biggest one because that's coming from farmland and that's the way we terraform the planet in a way that, you know, so it, it, it's not useful to call this disaster aesthetics mm -mm. unless we want to call everything we are as a species a disaster you know um so it's more about there's another world that's unfolding for me to have the life i have i need to know about that world because there's a consequence to that and yeah. we need to know those consequences and we need to demand those who have the licenses to work out there to bring us those things need to work within an envelope that's, that is sustainable that does not destroy you know all things in its path Mm. So I think, you know, that and so how do we get to live our lives and not destroy everything is really the real question. Anything else is a kind of a silly to think about it because we're still going to consume. We, you know, yeah. we get up, we, we need food to, to eat, we need water to drink, we need, you know, uh, all of that. We need a shelter, we need vehicles to get around. And how do we stop that? We can't. Mm. Mm. There's a sort of incongruity in the sense that the, the, it, your images are so often very beautiful but you're depicting these kind of what well, sometimes quite disastrous environmental scenarios but is that important to you that you know that they're aesthetically 
appealing in order for people to you know want to look, look at them i suppose yeah it's interesting because i when i came out at four by five you know with four by five and then i went to move to eight by ten this was in the late 70s and early 80s and color and that was really kind of unusual you know there was a, a couple you know joel sternfield uh, was doing large format color um, yeah, Elliot Porter was doing some color work in large format landscape. Um, you know, there and there were you know uh, Stephen Shore. So there was a handful of photographers using color, uh, but really only Elliot Porter was re- really applying it to to landscape. Um, and I liked the idea of going in large format. So even when I you know grabbed that you know, four by five, and they were teaching me how to do commercial work with it, you know, like how to photograph a bottle or a perfume bottle or a booze bottle or whatever. And so I got, you know, some of that training with the large format. And I said, I love this camera. And I started applying it to going out in the field and taking the studio camera and hauling it out into the field and using it in the field. But the minute you're actually using a large format camera and you're committing film to it, so it's not like digital, you're committing film. I was always like, by... Um, kind of process of what you know what what is it you know why would I take a picture of this with four by five and and commit the five dollars even at the time to make that picture if it wasn't something that was you know had some kind of aesthetic to it that there was a a visual you know reason to 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 you know compose that image you know and getting the lighting right and getting the so and then i started doing architectural work on top of that so again when i went into the city and to shoot a building i waited for the light i wanted the, the dimensionality i wanted all of that because i'm working with this you know expensive medium and i'm trying to capture a world in which you know when you stand in front of the image there's a kind of dimensionality there's a relationship to it and I, and I also saw photography as the ultimate realist tool so you know why be a realist painter when I, in a fraction of a second i can get that piece of the world that i can't you know point that camera at in the kind of detail that is you know unbelievable which four by five and eight by ten gave me so you know so for me i just came out of a a natural always wanting to find that subject and i didn't and it's and it wasn't search for the beautiful it was a search for the visually compelling mm. how do you make the image so that somebody stands in front of it and goes wow you know I'm, there's something about there's a, a resonance in what i'm seeing here yeah. there's a dimensionality to it there's i'm seeing the world sharp across a whole field in which i can't because when we look in the world it's like 8% degree is sharp. You know, if in, in our retina, there's one area and then everything else is like a low res, you know. Right. And here, the whole surface is high res. And I was interested in that. I was interested in that kind of thing that photography can do that our natural way of seeing can't do. I mean, we, we can't see the world that way, but the camera can. Mm. And, and so to me, it was always about that. The fact that, you know, people say it's aesthetic or people say it's beautiful, I'm going, yeah. I, I, you know, a tire pile is that beautiful? I don't know, but it's, it's but I think it's visually compelling. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it makes me want to look at it. It makes me. T- it takes it out of a mundane subject that you'd walk by and say, "Who on earth would take a photograph of a refinery or a quarry or a mine or a tire pile? You know, any scrap metal, whatever, and find it. You know, mm-hmm. a, a kind of a, a subject worthy of." the camera and yeah. worthy of and i was interested in that that kind of 
taking what would normally be considered a lowly subject, uh, you know, that no, that no one would ever consider a, a, as a subject for, you know, for, for art or for camera, and elevating it to something that visually, you know, makes you look at it and reminds you of what it is. So mm-hmm. here's a pile of, you know, computer boards that have been stripped. But it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Here's a pile of, you know, densified oil filters that have been crushed to go back into the, you know, and recycled into the process. But look at it. It looks like a reappel. It looks like, yeah. a, you know, modernist painting. Well, that's the other thing that's f- compelling is is the ambiguity about what the hell you're looking at. You know, you I think you you quite enjoy playing with that as well. That on the scale that you're photographing, I'm thinking uh, as an example. Uh, a shot of um, this kind of miles and miles of greenhouses, you know, from the from the sky, obviously, and and you know, you, I love that kind of what the hell am I looking at? And then maybe you have to read the caption, and then suddenly it's like, wow, that's extraordinary. So, is that something you also kind of deli- deliberately try to play with? That sense yeah, of scale, yeah, yeah. So it's just not, yeah, on that scale, you don't really know. You know, I mean, to see these things stretching out, you know, almost as far as the eye can see. Like you say, they're vast landscapes, but we don't normally see them. We're not normally close to those kind of places, in a way. Yeah, even like, um, it's interesting when, one of the first things, so, you know, actually in this show here at the Saatchi, um, I was going through some of my early notebooks, and I, I remember journaling in in 1983, you know, when I was just trying to set, I had gotten a grant, uh, an arts grant, and that allowed me to travel across North America. And I, I left Toronto and spent four months on the road with, with my Volvo and camping and, and just, you know, doing a lean and mean trip around all of North America. So I went all the way to the West Coast, Canada, all the way down into California, and then went across the United States and back up. So I did a North, like a North, United States, Canada tour over four months. And, I, and along that way, I, I, I actually was thinking about what is it that I can photograph that, you know, what subject can I choose, which I wouldn't have to constantly reinvent, you know, what it is that I was, you know, focusing my camera on, something that was a big enough idea that I can pretty much spend my, the rest of my life doing. And, and, then, I, and then actually in there, there's a, there's a, a paragraph in that book where I, you know, in 1983, where I synthesized what I was going to do and pretty much have stuck to it exactly, you know, 40, I guess it's 41 years later. It's, you know, I haven't, I didn't waver off of it, which is looking at the large scale human impact on the planet, um, you know, and, uh, and, and the consequence, the pushing back of nature. So nature was going to be on the one side. And so everything I'm photographing is, in a way, a lament for the loss of nature. So our success is, is pushing back nature. Mm. You know, they, don't, they don't live comfortably side by side. And I understood that 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to be looking at the dynamic of our footprint, ever-expanding footprint. And, the, and, by, na- and by just reason you understand that nature is being pushed back. So it's interesting when we look at, uh, when I started looking at agriculture, and agriculture was the very first subject I went after, mm. um, looking at it as the largest impact we had on, uh, on terraforming the planet. So and if you even look today, if you call, like in North America, if you called 100% of ha- habitable land or arable land, and you call that 100%, 
so it wouldn't be the mountains, the Rocky Mountains, or it wouldn't be the waterways. It would just be the land that's that that's you can build on or farm, or convert to farm like like wetlands, um, and call that a hundred percent of 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 land. Uh, urban is one percent of that, and farmland is twenty eight percent of that. Wow. So when you take a look at uh, like mm. you know where's our footprint? Our footprint is in farming. Yeah. What's killing biodiversity is farming, and what's you know, entering our waterways is all the nitrates and all the, you know, the, the phosphors that we put as fertilizers and the pesticides. And what's, you know, harming the waterways is it's the rains that take that into the waterways and then right. creating algae blooms on the exit of the, into the oceans and things of that nature. So the nitrate loading that we're putting into our waterways is all coming from farming. So if we look at what is the probably the most dangerous thing that we're doing to the landscape is is the mm. way we're farming and the amount of animals that we're bringing into the world. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because, and obviously as the population increases, we need more food and then the problem, you know, uh, is amplified, I suppose. And is it mainly, is meat, I mean, obviously people talk a lot about meat being a big problem, you know, uh, livestock uh, farming. Um, is, is that the what, what are the kind of, who are the big kind of environmental bad guys as, as far as industries go? I mean, well, I would, you know, I mean, the two areas that, that are really dangerous, uh, I think, uh, is in, in farming. If we look at like 70% of all um, crops that come off of all farms go towards feeding the animals that we eat. Mm-hmm. And then 30% we actually eat directly from from the farms, like the grains and mm-hmm. and the fruits and the vegetables. So, you know, by and large, most of the time when you're seeing farmland, when you're going by, 70% of that is, is for animals. 30% is for us. And then if you look at irrigation and use of water, uh, you know, that's the same thing. It's almost, you know, that's the same amount of water for irrigation is 70% for So when you look at every, you know, liter of water that, human beings you know divert and use half of that water is for for growing the 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 grains for the animals that we eat so mm-hmm. you know environmentally you know uh that that's a huge impact um but you know everything you know has i mean fishing you know you know, you know taking fish in the sea and protein you know that's also you know, if you talk to anybody who understands you know fish eat fish so we rarely you know, to, to, to grow. Most of them, there are very few fish are vegetarians. Most of them are carnivores. So they eat, the, you know, there's their own species, but the smaller versions of themselves. We, we all, in mammals, we only eat vegetarians. Like we don't eat tigers, you know, because they're, you know, you know they're, they're predators and they go out and they're carnivores. So we, we rarely, on, uh, for, for animals on earth, we don't eat carnivores. We eat, veg, you know, hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. herbivores. And so... But in the oceans, they're carnivores, so we're eating a high protein chain, you know, uh, yeah. which is also not that sustainable. Right. Um, so, I mean, we, you look around, I mean, the, 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 you know, we face a lot of dilemmas everywhere we look. Yeah. It's, and it's not, that the problem is, is, the problem is there's 8 billion of us, you know. If there was a billion of us and with the technology that we have, the world would be fine. It's just that there's too many of us wanting the same thing, and 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 there's so many, so many that still haven't come up to you know our level standard of of living, and, and that's the problem. Is you know if the rest of the world you know met our standard of living and the amount of consumption, the amount of hectares 
per person of, of agricultural land that it takes to support each one of us in, a, in an urban setting like London or Toronto or whatever. Uh, we're short three planets to get everybody to that level of uh, of, of existence. Oh, yeah. So, so that we're on a trajectory that that literally it's impossible. We would have to raise the planet to nothing mm-hmm. to get us all to this standard of living, unless we devise new ways of you know creating calories without the consequence of of what's happening out there and on the planet so the and the and this is a kind of i guess byproduct of my research over 40 years of looking at the biggest examples of the things that we're doing to the planet and where do i get it one one picture that somehow becomes a stand-in for that activity whether it's copper mining or iron ore mining or farming or anything. So some of the farming images are pivot irrigation. So when you're driving along these prairies and there's these big circles, you don't even know they're circles. Mm. It just looks like farming. Oh, yeah, I love those those ones. They're, they're beautiful. I mean, again, the beauty, you know, to, to shoot that from an angle that went, you know, one wouldn't normally see it from, and then you create this amazing kind of uh, abstract pattern. Um, and in fact, this this show's called abstraction uh, extraction, you know, which sort of sums it up. But I want to kind of go back a little bit to what you just said about how you know you you, you sort of knew early on what the themes were, what the projects, what the what the what. How, did you plan your career? Did you have very specific goals from an, from an early stage? Yeah, I mean, I, I realized that. You know, and it just it was incremental. And even when I um, kind of diverted uh, off of what I thought diverted off the path, I, I realized that it wasn't really off the path. You know, it was just another variation. So, you know, because at one point I said, well, you know, I, 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 when my daughters were born, I didn't want to travel so much. I didn't want to go to the mining areas or quarry areas, and I didn't want to travel. So I just stuck around and did you know, recycling, recycling yards and, you know, considered that kind of like urban mining, you know, so that we've gone to the primary source to get aluminum, like bauxite, or we went to the primary source to get iron or whatever, nickel, or all the things we need to make our consumer goods. And, you know, but now, you know, we're recycling it, so then it all gets recollected, you know, uh, through recycling programs, and then it gets sorted, and then I went to the sorting places, and I called that urban mining. It's like we're, it's a secondary level of mining. So the primary level is out there in nature, and it's a big open pit or underground mine. So I photographed those. I'm saying, well, this is once it's in the system, aluminum can be continuous, continuously recycled. So I'm going to go to that place too. Mm-hmm. So, but I could do that in my neighborhood. I can do that, you know, down the down the road from where I live because that's where they recycle it. So I started doing stuff closer to home, and then there was a refinery there. Oh well, you know we, we we take you know crude oil and we convert it to all the things from asphalt to you know petroleum to uh, all the different oils that we use and in lubricants and all of that and it's all you know and, I, and plastics and we just look at all the plastics that we consume every day. So I said, well, that's just down the street. I'll photograph that because that's a conversion of uh, raw material. And then at one point I go, well, where's all this? You know, where are the origins? Like I went to mines. You know, where, where do we get oil from? So then I started photographing oil fields. Mm. Where are the biggest concentrations? Where was oil discovered? So I went to those places. So I kind of organically mm-hmm. would jump from one thing to the next. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, the, yeah. And of course, yeah, it's interesting because you say you know, it's incremental because people see... Because one of the things I wanted to ask you about is 
is success really <laughs> because you know in this very sort of oversubscribed slightly you know undervalued little world of photo- of art of art and photography you know you have become incredibly successful um and not that many people do you know and i, I was wondering about how you thought about that and you know what your own idea of of success is um you know because yeah i'm, I'm fascinated by that and mo- most of the people i talk to you know are on on some level you know if you can make a good living as a photographer or you can find a way to fund you know the personal projects that you want to do you know that's 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 pretty good going but you know you you're you're kind of one of the outliers in a way and i wonder do you ever marvel at that in a way is does that you know do you contemplate how did i get here well it's interesting because you know when i started this idea in 1983 I looked around. I graduated. Uh, um, I started in 1976, and I took a couple years off just to work and save up some money because I wanted to be unencumbered financially to do my final fourth year work. I just wanted to shoot, lose, shoot large format. I wanted to not have any restrictions on materials, and I wanted to incubate my ideas more because I was already thinking about man nature. Those are the two kind of you know, humans and nature. Those are the two things that. I wanted to kind of focus on even in my early, you know, student work. I was working on those ideas. Um, it's just I didn't know exactly how I was going to do it. I just was interested in doing. It. I just wasn't sure how I was going to do it, and and not only that, but how I was going to finance doing it. So in um, in '83, after I did that big trip, uh, where I kind of built my thesis for what I felt was could be a life's work, I realized that there was no market. There was no place for, nobody was buying big color work. I was doing, at that time, big color work was a 20 by 24 inch print. And when you go see the show, that's like, now I'm doing 20 by 25 foot prints. <laughs> yeah. you know, um, so it was kind of like, but that was a big print at that time. That was mm-hmm. kind of like working four by five, 2024. 30, 40 was like outrageously big, right. you know, uh, and, um, you know, but I wanted to work in those. I always wanted to work in those sizes. I wanted the big print. I wanted you to fall into the image. I wanted you to have this experience, like almost a vertigo of a body experience. And the bigger the print was, the more you had that experience. And I was always interested in that as an image maker. And so I realized that there was no market. And so I said, I'm going to start a business that isn't going to interfere with my creative photographic work. So then I started planning to open up a lab, a darkroom rental lab. So, was, so I was, in 1985, I, I, I leased a place, 2,000 square feet, built 10 darkrooms, a C41 processing lab, and a custom lab. Um, and we did inner negatives and prints and custom printing. And, and I taught classes in color printing as well. And in 1985, I opened up, uh, in 86, I opened up a lab, which is still operating. So the right. whole show upstairs is completely produced by my lab. Oh, wow. Okay, um, yeah. And so 40 years later, I still have the lab. Um, so that was your way of solving the age-old problem of how do I finance right. the photography in a way? And, and there's something about opening up a company. And I, real, and, and I really didn't fully, if I understood what I'd, was doing at the time, I probably wouldn't have done it if I really had a, a you know a clearer idea of what it was going to take. And I went through a couple of, a, a bad recession in '92, where I almost lost the company and almost spun out and went bankrupt. And I just pulled myself out of that. 
because uh, the recession started to come back. It was like a three-year drought mm. where I had to lay off most of my staff and do all the work and work 14, 15 hours a day for mm-hmm. four or five years just to get it through that window. But we made it through. But, but I also then realized that, you know, to, to run a business, you know, you, you have to provide value to the customer. You know, you have to make something that somebody's going to come through your door and pay you money to to for and i realized that it t- you know there that that uh, it taught me to be in the service of of others mm-hmm. you know that entrepreneurs are in the service of others you know to make something that that is useful to the person who's going to take their hard earned money and give it to you in exchange for something that they have as value and i think that some of that also carried over to my work as an artist mm-hmm. and i didn't want to ever be like the photographer the photographer for hire i wanted to keep my camera pure for my ideas once in a while i do commissions but they were something that i would kind of want to do anyway some for my own work it fit into my my you know my project um, and I always kind of kept a, a, a certain amount of architectural work uh, that I would do certain commissions for architecture because I loved the built environment as well. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it was that, to, to understanding value and bringing service to others. That, and so when I, as an artist, when I started selling work, I also made sure that I was very professional with any dealer that I had. So when they ordered a print, they would have it perfectly you right. know, created on time. That's really uh, interesting, yeah, yeah. Because that's that's an element of of, of you know the kind of creative uh process that so many of us <laughs> kind of fail to uh remember in a way. Um I think, you know, photographers and creative people are notoriously not so tuned into that side of things. Certainly don't necessarily have an entrepreneurial bent though some do clearly you did um but yeah when you starting to sell prints for very significant amount of money obviously that that kind of customer has pretty high demands high standards but when did that when did that happen when did you start selling prints and become essentially a pretty kind of kind of, kind of collect collectible photographer did that happen Relatively early on. Yeah, I think, well, I, I, you know, I was selling my prints as art prints, like even in the early 80s, uh, mm. but I was selling them to museums. Right. You know, so my Railcut series that I did in 83 and 85 um, were being collected by, you know, museums and galleries. And then in 1986, uh, I opened my first commercial gallery uh, in Soho in, in New York. So my first gallery was in 1986 that was your own gallery no 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 oh. it, was, it was a, a photographer the uh, larry miller gallery oh, it's okay, lawrence okay. miller gallery I so see. yeah so he he took me on and, and so i had a only one gallery for the first five years in new york and then i opened up a toronto gallery um in in 92 i'm still with uh nick mativier and so with him we we started in 1992 in toronto mm. And then, uh, and then it was like 99 that um, I started with uh, the Flowers Gallery here in London. So that was my first international gallery was Flowers in 99. And then I had a gallery that opened up, the Tapias Gallery, w- which I opened up in Barcelona. And then I um, had uh, in Cologne, I opened up a German gallery in Cologne. So then I started, and, and then I found a gallery in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and I opened up in Hong Kong at one. So I t- typically now have a, a eight or nine galleries that represent my work. Mm-hmm. But I'm dealing out of my studio with all of them. 
You know, right. So I'm direct. I don't have like one central dealer that then deals with. So my, my studio has been set up. And I built all kinds of software around that so that, you know, if I did multiples that anybody, it's a live inter, you know, uh, database that anybody can see what's available at any given time, what editions have sold out, where mm. they've sold. Um, and so it's a very dynamic um, and re- a real-time database uh, mm-hmm. that allows me to work internationally. So that was all built, again, in, this, in the service of the dealers and, this, and, and making sure that the quality was always you know, at what I call 100%. There, yeah. you know, there was no room for error here. Yeah. And in a way, it's sort of like, you know, your photographic practice is... It's interesting you talk about, you know, sort of learning from your kind of entrepreneurial experience because when you're doing things on the scale that you're doing things, you know, you're employing people, you're hiring helicopters and, you know, this is a very expensive kind of uh, undertaking. So, you know, you have to be successful financially, you know, commercially in order to continue to do the work and and let the work, you know, into the world and have people see it, right? It's a kind of, it's a it's a kind of cycle that has to continue. So that's... Do you think you could have carried on if you hadn't had any commercial success? Would you have still been motivated to to continue, as it were? Well, I, I think it would be pretty much impossible. Right, because that's what, exactly the, yeah, what I'm yeah, thinking. Yeah, 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 because I realized that to, for me to for it to work, number one, for me to work at this level, um, I, I needed help. I, you know, uh, uh, you know what's what's the the, the great African saying? If, if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go with uh, uh, you know go with a team right. or go with you know. so i realized i wanted to go far so i needed a team i couldn't do it all my on my own yeah and so i so you know that that precluded it was the same thing that when i started my lab in in, in 1986 i recognized what really fully came on board that when i was staffed at about five or six staff that all roads led to me, like mm-hmm. everything, every problem, every, you know, that all six people were reporting directly to me and, and I had no time to think. And I realized that the only way I can actually get some autonomy back is to have some management, but I couldn't have a justify a manager with only six employees. So I realized I had to build a business big enough to have about 15 to 20 employees and then get a manager and then roads lead right. the manager and then I deal with the manager. So I recognized that I, that I needed scale even to, to kind of, I needed a certain velocity to get away from the, the fact that I would be pinned down in, def, like, mm. to, in, in every detail and not be able to leave to do my work. So I needed, I realized I had to build a business. So I kept expanding the business until I had 20 employees. Right, right. At the biggest, it became 40 employees. It's now about 25. Mm. Um, but now I have management there running it. So I can be here and then it's still running and I know it's not right. you know, running into the ground. Right. So, so my studio was the same thing. I, mean, I now have a studio of like seven full-time people in my studio yeah. that allow me to work at the scale of this Saatchi show or, 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 or you know, other shows mm-hmm. of scale. I can actually, you know, put it all together and vertically integrate it. So this exhibition, it's, you know, shot, printed. So I shot it, you know, all my color balancing, the printing, the mounting, the laminating, the framing, and the building of the crates and the, and the shipping is all done for my studio. Wow. And all the murals are all printed in my studio. So we're, so it's a completely vertically integrated show. Yeah. That everything's coming out of Toronto, out of my studio. That's incredible. Uh, That's a level of... Uh, organization there that's um enviable but i guess like you said like you say you do starting that lab gave you 
certain amount of experience in, in that. Well, you realize how to, that, how to work with groups of people. And then mm -hmm. films became... So when we were doing the films, I was still doing my stills, like when we go to China. But then we have a film crew, and then we have the, the minders from the Chinese government, and then we have the fixers and the translators. And then, so we were you know, renting a, uh, you know, a big bus for 40 people and for all our gear. And, and uh, you know, so we're running you know, 20, 25 people continuously across the landscape, you know, photographing and keeping everybody, you know, we had sound people and camera people and, you know, people managing the data, you know, and then fixers and translators and, and all of that. And then, you know, you know, drone operators. And mm -hmm. yeah, so we all those things are being run simultaneously as we're doing a shoot and trying to maximize everything because we're there for these very short periods of time. At a very high price to be there every day is costing us twenty, thirty thousand dollars to be there. Yeah. So you got to maximize it, you know, to, to you know to make a film. So films were like multi-million dollar projects. Mm. Yeah. It feels like a lot of it is probably problem solving and all that sort of stuff. It feels like the the actual taking of the image is the very sort of is almost like the cherry on the cake, right? Well, yeah, it, it, it's like you know. Uh, keeping a cool head in the middle of a maelstrom mm -hmm. all the time you know you have to keep to keep everybody on track and 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 then all the because it's not like a script that we're saying we're going here we're doing that there isn't we're saying we go to the place and we sort of have an idea what we're after and then you have to kind of invent it while you're going along while keeping everybody you know mm -hmm. in place to be ready to react with the light with the situation with all of that on mm -hmm. standby so you're kind of you have a whole group of people ready to respond to when you say, now we're shooting, now we're doing this, now we're going here, now we're doing it. So all, everything is, is kind of cascading from this is the subject, this is when we're going to do it, this is how we're going to do it, this is the lens I need, this is the kind of way we're going to approach it and all that. So all my thinking is at that level. Mm -hmm. and, then everything, and then you're making sure everything is blocked below you to be ready to respond you know, to that. What's been the most challenging... Um project in terms of logistics or politics or you know the, the sort of obstacles that needed to be overcome would you say well that's that's pretty good uh that's a good question um there's been quite a few really challenging ones um you know uh, the one was going into uh, you know i think russia in 2017 where <laughs> they didn't believe what, what what we told them they, they, they you know because we told them that we were artists and we came in on a cultural visa and that we were artists making a documentary film and we went to norilsk and and they when they when we arrived we came with you know 25 cases mm -hmm. and you know and a crew of like 10 you know and they went what are you talking about you're not artists you, you, which you know what media company are you affiliated with you can't on your own becoming with all this gear you're definitely working for somebody who right. who are you working for and we're going no no we're just artists we're doing a documentary <laughs> film seriously we, we travel with a lot of stuff you know we got drones and we got this yeah. and we got that and, they, and then they they wouldn't believe us mm. and they kept and then they wanted us to, you know took us to the police station they wanted us to sign a confession that we were actually lying and we were really journalists and that we were here under false premises and we said no because we're not you know 
And eventually, I think they just backchecked us and realized that we were artists mm. and working at this scale, you know, because I think they were just surprised that we, you know, artists could work at this scale, you know, and and uh, so that was, you know, and even when I went to um, China, when you go into the back countries in China, you, you come in with you know eight or nine of us, and we've got you know people helping us move stuff around and drivers and this and that and. And they always ask the question, like, you know, well, which work group? Everything is because we have this indiv individual kind of mindset. And as soon as you go into the countryside in China, there's not individual mindset. It's, it's like you belong to a work group. You belong to a village and you belong to a work group. You belong to the telecom work group or the road work group or the construction of high rise work group. And, and so, you know, and then you, you identify with that group. And then they say, well, who are you? And I'd say, well, you know, I'm the group. I, I, it's just me. I'm, and they go, well, who's paying for it? And I said, well, I sell my pictures. And they said, you're selling pictures of what I'm doing here, and you can fund that. And they would be totally like, what's going on? Like yeah. they would blow, they would, uh, couldn't understand. <laughs> Number one, why would anybody want a picture of that? You know, like, why would anybody want this picture of this town being flattened, you know, mm. to make way for the Three Gorges Dam? You know, uh, like, why is this something that somebody would pay for? And, and, and you're actually, and all these people, you're paying them out of your own, as an artist, as an individual? They, they couldn't yeah, comprehend. It's, it's, yeah, you can kind of understand why they'd be perplexed <laughs> by it, right? You know, yeah. for, coming at it from their perspective. But actually, it's an interesting question about, you know, what, why would someone, I mean, how do you feel about the sort of co commodification of, of the work, the fact that someone's going to pay a really big chunk of money to have a huge Batinsky, you know, on their wall, which is a kind of, as I said before, a kind of depiction of some kind of environmental disaster. Does that feel incongruous sometimes? Do you, do you find that? How do you, yeah, how do you think about that? Well, I mean, uh, I think... Uh, it, I, I, it, it's an interesting thing because I don't. I see it as the only way. I mean, uh, mm. to to fund these projects is and that, um, you know, what I'm chronicling in a way. You know, my research takes me largely, you know, to the areas with the largest example of whatever it is I'm thinking about. The biggest factories in the world, the biggest dam in the world, the largest farming areas in the world. Um, uh, the ship breaking, the largest vessels in the world being broken down. So a lot of this is this kind of the scale of of, of human enterprise uh, uh, at this time. So, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm leaving behind uh, a kind of a historic legacy of you know because the research has been so rigorous and all these things that the, here, here's a way. You know the the witnessing of these things and the capturing them the way I did and 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 the referencing to the to to the world of art and and the, whether it's abstract expressionism or even the, the traditional nineteenth century you know documentary kind of tradition which I've also some of my images fall into that category or abstraction and so I'm referencing the world of art and I'm referencing you know all the time and I'm then referencing you know large scale human you know ambition and enterprise. Um, and technology. So I think that, um, and to try and make them in a way that that people are engaged. I mean, when somebody's standing in front of an image and it doesn't immediately reveal itself, that I don't know, I don't know what I'm looking at here. What is what's going on here? Like, mm -hmm. what, what is this? You know, in the world of photography, we, we see thousands of images every day. 
whether we think about it or not. But I think that there, there's something that says, you know, especially now with Instagram and we see thousands, we, you know, we see more images than we do text now. I mean, it's a bigger medium through which we kind of experience the world. So for me, when I can make images where people are kind of somehow looking at an image and going, I, I, and it dislocates and they can't actually position what it is, where it is, and how it is. Yeah. Um, that, you know, and sometimes they don't even realize it's a photograph. And then it, and then it slowly reveals itself. It's a photograph. I, I, I've been in front of my photographs arguing with people that it's a real place in the world. And they're going, no, it's not. And I'm going, no, excuse me, I've been there. Yeah. I can take you to the place. I can show, I can take the hell of rent it there. We'll go there and I'll show you it. You know, um, and, and, and so... So I think that the evocation of the sense of wonder and the sense of the surreal or the improbable or what what am I looking at to me is um, interesting in a, in, a, in a time where images are so consumed mm-hmm. that these are not for for quick consumption therefore slow and I think when things reveal themselves slowly in a more challenging way, I think they become more interesting as, as objects to believe in the world, that, that they don't just reveal themselves immediately. Yeah. And, and you can't just get it in one quick glance no, exactly. and I'm done. No, that these, these things ask you to look at them and to spend time with them. Mm. And, and I discover things in them sometimes that I never saw before, that they're loaded with information. There's a lot going on. Because of the detail, yeah. And that thing of, I was talking about earlier with the um, example of the uh, greenhouses, you know, that, yeah, that, that certain um, that uncertainty about what you're looking at, um, there's, it's very appealing. Yeah. I was um, thinking about, you, you did a TED Talk nearly 20 years ago now which is kind of shocking to to think 2005 and um you got to you get to make some wishes you yes the ted award is is what you won whereby you get to to make some sort of publicly make some some wishes for yourself and i and i was interested in one of the things you wished for was that your artwork uh, could persuade millions of people to join a global conversation about sustainability um so 20 years later, what, what are your reflections on that? Because it feels like we have joined that conversation, but it's not necessarily doing that much good in a way. You know, like the conversation is certainly um, a major part of our, of our everyday lives. But in terms of trying to persuade governments and industry to do anything, that seems another step. Do you, when you think back on that wish, do you feel like would you reframe it in a different way with the benefit of? 20 years of hindsight? Uh, not really, because I think, you know, until the hardest thing to change, I think, is human behavior, especially once it's been, you know, uh, adopted and entrenched in daily routine. And to shift behavior is it's very, very challenging. And, and um, at, at that time, one of the ways that I tried to shift it is also, um, you know, through my filmmaking as well, that I, because one of the wishes was to make an IMAX film, never got there, but but it kind of sent a signal out there that I was interested in making films. And right. then I, and then the, by 2006, I found you know Jennifer Bashwell and Nick DePonsi, who were documentary filmmakers, and then we joined forces, and they had all the machinery of film, and I had you know the access and the ideas for yeah. for the subject, and then we kind of came together and collaborated on on, on making these series of films and. 
So, um, but I do think that it's had a, you know, that, you know, know, in the Anthropocene project, our byline was the raising of consciousness is the beginning of change. So until, it's it's the same thing as, you think of uh, tobacco, you know, and and so it was now 60 years ago where the, you know, the Surgeon General said, you know, smoking causes cancer. And then for 40 years, you had quack, crackpot scientists saying, ah, they're wrong. Mm. There's no, no, no evidence. And, and then eventually, every, you know, the evidence is in and, you know, the memo comes out. Yes, indeed, you get cancer from smoking cigarettes. Yeah. And, and then people still had that choice that I'm going to smoke knowing that it can give me cancer. Or you can, you know, so it, it would be impossible to to be smoking and not knowing that this is harmful to right. your health. Right. Everybody, yeah. Every, you know, so, so you're making that yourself. The problem with uh, climate change and, and consumption of fossil fuels and, and and all of that is that there isn't an alternative. I know it's bad for the planet, but, you know, and now alternatives are starting to come in. So we're looking at... Uh, you know, electric cars, and we're able to make more energy through solar or or, or wind, um, and even in you know, hydropower. So, you know, we're 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 seeing that there are alternatives, and there's way there there are ways out of this dilemma, but it's incremental. And so, I think um, you know we're in a period, and and that's where I'm hopeful is that I think that there's still we still have t- enough time to really avert the worst. You know, uh, I mean, it's still going to hurt, but it's a question of how badly. Um, and, um, you know, and that kind of, um, you know, a- averting the worst is, is, is really the way we need to do it. And, and, and that transition and then, you know, add to that a just transition so that those who are being affected are, are given opportunities to degree to, to find other ways to, to, to make a living because there's, you know, I, I, I got an electric car uh, in 2017, so it's like seven years ago, but I quickly realized because I had a gasoline car before that, that I'm never going to an oil chain shop again. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to, um, you know, get a muffler fixed. I'm never going to go and get my transmission fixed. I'm never going to go, you know, so I look at all these shops. I'm never going to go into a gas station again. Mm. So all these are all, all this infrastructure I was driving along and looking at and saying, I, I have no more need for that. Mm. And I'm thinking if we all went electric, all that is gone. It's just like when Fotography went digital, all the little one hour photo labs that used to be on every corner and, and the little kiosks for getting your film processed all disappeared. Right. Yeah. And so it's the same thing with electric car. It, it, mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a complete kind of revolution of how we get around. And there's people that get displaced in that every time. Mm-hmm. And so, but it's interesting in the oil industry itself, it doesn't employ that many people. It doesn't take a lot of people. Once you've drilled the hole or once you've done that, you know, uh, you know it, it doesn't take a lot of, of, of human labor. And that's why it's so profitable. You know, uh, so you're not displacing a lot of human labor, but there's a lot of the downstream you know, the, in the refining and then all the plastics that are made. So think of oil and think of all the plastic companies that are making bottles and all the shipping of those bottles to, you know, and, and moving of, of product that way. Or, or, you know, think of all the oils and lubricants and how 
you know, the byproducts of oil end up in so many different products that we're, con we're consuming. Um, and not to mention the, the you know the, the gasoline that we use and the jet fuel that we use. So so when you start looking at all the downstream consequences and all the industries that have uh, built around this product yeah. uh, is where you get huge displacements of uh, of, of um, human labor mm -hmm. and, and and job opportunity. I suppose the the big question is whether I mean you say it feels like you are reasonably optimistic or hopeful at least um the big question i suppose is i mean yeah you talk about change and 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 the the example of, of tobacco but of course we don't have that kind of time to get the message across in a way it's it's a kind of race against time the way it feels right does it does it feel that way to you are you how do you stay reasonably optimistic well, time is our enemy. I mean, um, and, you know, they're, they're, I'm not, you know, there, there may come a moment, you know, that, that we have to do some kind of geoengineering intervention, you know, to avert the worst, you know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, one of the kind of interesting ones uh, to me, which would probably have the most benign uh, effect. I don't, I don't like the idea of, of uh, spraying sulfites into the stratosphere because you know eventually that particular does come back down on, and the last thing we wanted to be doing is acidifying the oceans more or you know acidifying our soils or, or waterways um, there is this kind of idea of these large kind of massive umbrellas you know that that are positioned in geosynchronous orbit with between the sun and the earth that that just become like an umbrella uh, that might cool us down. Mm -hmm. uh, that feels kind of more less more benign, you know. And even if that costs, let's say, let's say it costs uh, two trillion dollars, you know, to build that. Oh, if it saves a planet, I mean, yeah. you know, we, we have an, the general global economy of the planet is like a hundred trillion a year. So that's two percent mm -hmm. of the global kind of amount of you know value that rolls around the planet every year. So. If that allows us to stay here, mm. uh, you know, it's a bargain. It's a bargain. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Uh, so there may, you know, I don't know if we can't get it done fast enough, and there's some kind of a benign uh, intervention, technical interven intervention we could do to buy some time. I'd say we should do it. Mm. You know, I mean, if we say, like I said, I don't like the sulfites, but um, but if we can create something in space that can actually, you know, mm. sit there as a parasol. Um, I can't imagine, uh, you know, too many countries complaining about that mm -hmm. because, it, it, you know, it could it could avert the worst. So I think, you know, and, and, you know, if you listen to you know Silicon Valley that, you know, robotics and AI and all that, you know, yes, it's going to take jobs, but it also can create abundance, mm -hmm. you know, that, that all the, you know, that we have this scarcity idea in our head, but truly we may be sitting in the uh, technology in a technological sense at the at, at the threshold of abundance mm. well i always find uh, sort of sort of cognitive dissonance is the the, the technology is is both the um, problem and the potential solution you know it's both those things sort of simultaneously in a way you know that technology is definitely a major uh culprit but um, that may be our salvation as well. Well, I think in the end of the film, 
know, in the narrative, that's what we basically said is that technology got us into this, and mm-hmm. it's and, and, and we can't get out without it. I mean, yeah. they, they, we only have one one you know one way to escape this problem is through technology. So it's a question of, you know, can we create enough positive technology, whether it's you know, vertical farming, because if you do vertical farming, you know, yes, you're using robotics, but you're using controlled amounts of water, you're using no pesticides, you're using, you know, that you can get the same kind of nutrition that's coming off of off of those plants that mm-hmm. done properly. Um, so, you know, the, and if we can start to uh, create, you know, what is you know, authentically meat in a petri dish and through growing it, you know, or, you know, so, meat, yeah. Yeah. So we can all of a sudden start creating alternatives, you know, to, to, uh, doing it the way we've always done it and, and still, you know, get the protein and get the calorie, uh, calories that we need. And then of course, energy, we know that, you know, batteries, the price of batteries are coming down, the, 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 the price of electric cars are coming down, there's more and more people building it. Um, you know, it may mean, you know, mining is, is, you know, more mining for cobalt, more mining for lithium, more mining for aluminum, and all the things we need to build these cars will have to continue, but it still is a fraction of the mining it takes to build internal combustion cars. Yeah, so, yeah. so, you know, there is, uh, so there are ways forward. I don't think, it, it's a question, to me, the bigger problem is, um, the entrenched interests that have huge lobby groups and you know and, and yeah. lawyers up you know they're lawyered to the to the you know, up to the teeth with going in there and watching every word and new policies to make sure that they can work around them and keep doing what they want to do so it's it, it's will the self-interests overpower the interests of all um because these very powerful interests can shape you know which ways governments, which governments get elected, which mm-hmm. ways policies are are, are 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 written and delivered, and you know who who sets that agenda, and if it's big oil, and then they're going to slow down progress, you know, as much as they can, mm-hmm. you know, um, and um, and and that takes strong government to work against that, and it takes you know people being aware of it and. You know, putting protests in the right place to say, wait, wait, you know, these policies have to be, you know, clearly stated and a level playing field for everybody to make that transition because we're in a transitional moment. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, whatever's slowing that transition down needs to be examined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I want to sort of bring it to a close soon because uh, I'd, I'd love to go in the gallery and, and, and have a look. I'm <laughs> looking forward to that. And, um, we can maybe have a little chat about some of the images uh, for my subscribers um, for for their special episode. But um, is there anywhere you're still really keen to go that you haven't managed to get to, or any scenario that you're that you haven't yet photographed that you you know sort of top of your agenda for things you haven't yet done? I mean, I'm I'm trying to do things that are uh, you know sort of have a, a hopeful component to them as well mm. because i think it's really uh you know I, I never when i was you know in the process of making everybody aware i didn't i didn't recognize I, I thought you know people would go from a denial or i don't really care about it or what does this you know affect me or why should i care about it to caring about it but i didn't but i i didn't realize that the caring about it would also uh, create 
an enormous amount of anxiety, especially in youth. You know, like there is this enormous kind of climate anxiety that I see mm-hmm. growing out there, and and which was kind of a, a, an unexpected. I thought, you know, now we just move from you kind of move from it does I don't care or it's not uh, why should I care or how am I going to do anything to I'm going to do something. But there, I, I forgot that there could be a lot of people who don't do anything and just get anxious. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think doing something or figuring out how to do something is, you know, and feel that they're moving towards that a direction that's that, that's hopeful is important. So, and and it's not naive hope. It means that I believe that in my small acts and in my act of you know because the two great things that each one of us have of, 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 of persuasion is is our vote and our wallet, basically. You know, and so if you start using your vote and your wallet in a way that starts to point towards what you want, the world you want to see, uh, and uh, then each of us has that power. Each of us has that small incremental piece. And, 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 and I think hope is the belief that my exercising of my power has an effect, is positive, will and it's not going to change everything, but it'll. It, it, it's like me, and if I do it, and if my so I get my friends to do it, and they do it, and everybody does it, and it becomes the way we do things. That's how significant change happens. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how you shape and re- readjust. You know, our consumptive you know patterns and 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 go to new ways of doing because because corporations will go where the consumer is. They're just interested in making a margin, profit yeah, margin yeah. on whatever they sell. So they're selling something that that's organic or greener or done in a proper way, and we're willing to pay for it, or maybe a little bit more. Fine. So maybe you consume less, but consume better. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Uh, all, all these kinds of incremental things. So I think hopefulness is in each one of our acts and being aware of it and starting. And so for me also, as an artist, I can go and I just did a, um, a rare earth mine, which is like, we need rare earths, you know, because, you know, all the, you know, magnets, the rare earth magnets are necessary for the kinetic energy of electric car or, or all that mobility. And if we're going to have, you know, planes that can fly electrically or, you know, all of that, we're going to need rare earths or a key component to it. So I'm photograph. I'm still doing mining, but it's this mining is the kind of mining we need to start to to do more of if we're going to work our way technically out of this problem. So it's I think it's and I in the last Anthropocene project we went and did lit, the biggest lithium mines in the world. Well, we need lithium for batteries. So yes, it's mining, but it's mining towards a sustainable future. And so, we, you know, I'm not naive to think we can stop mining and still get where we want to go. It's not going to happen. We're just mining different things with a different outcome and, and that we're still going to have to do that. But mining is kind of, comparatively speaking, a small, you know, you know compared to agriculture, it's a small impact mm-hmm. uh, unless you have, you know, really, you know, the mining on the level of the oil sands in Alberta or massive mining where you know you, you know the, you have the tailings leaching into the water systems downstream and destroying lives you know downstream because there's cyanide or uh, arsenic or something that's now spiking the water mm-hmm. and people are downstream you know and so it's largely water tables that are affected by mining and that but it, it's usually localized it's it's not a big impact mm-hmm. so uh, um you know, th- these things we have to realize uh, you know, are going to continue. Yeah, yeah, and and like you say, I think important to to show people 
what might be possible. I, I spoke to an Italian photographer called Luca Locatelli, who who works very much in in the space you're doing. But it photographs a lot of these huge, fantastic environmental initiatives, you know, that are being driven by technology. Um, you know, and he made the point, you know, for the younger generation, like this this kind of default narrative is this, you know, we're screwed, and you need to show them. You know some of the, the the potential upside. You know, you need to, they need to see images yeah. of these incredible, these fantastic, you know, initiatives to to um, to, to to counteract the you know the downside. It feels like you you're kind of it feels like you're of the same mind that you need to do that. Yeah, that, that we need to tack towards a hopeful future mm-hmm. because. You know, I mean, no hope means a, a cynical, why should I bother? Yeah, yeah. And if everybody's into why should I bother, I'm just going to keep, you know, eating steak and, yeah. you know. Then we uh, really will be screwed. <laughs> then we're really screwed. <laughs> so, so you have to feel that, you know, your, your actions do have a consequence because just think of yourself. I, I like when I do, like, uh, like, I offset all my travel with a company that I know and I know it's golden offsets. In other words, that the real, real, CO2 is being taken out of the atmosphere every time I buy a, a ton of, uh, of, of um, you know, CO2 emission reductions. Or, you know, if I'm, you know, I, have a, I do have a place out in nature in the country I've had for, you know, since, since the mid-80s. Um, and to me, that's my place where I relocate. That's where I go and, you know, kind of connect back with nature. And to me, it's, I need that to stay hopeful. Um, but the place I have there, I've taken, you know, I put in solar panels, I, I have electric car, I'm, ha- you know, I, I'm literally adding power back into the grid uh, versus taking power out of the grid, you know. <clears throat> so I am kind of slowly, you know, weaning myself up. I and mean, the way I'm thinking about it is that if, if everybody did kind of what I'm doing, even if I'm running at a fairly high carbon scale because I have to travel to do my work. Mm-hmm. But I'm making sure, like, not only do I offset all the tonnage of CO2 for my whole studio, for my books, for my travel, if I use a helicopter, I, I, I do that and then I do it a double up on it. And I say, I'm going to do it twice, you know, so that if I've missed anything, yeah, it's more yeah. than more than covered. And it also then probably covers my staff coming to work, you know, uh, using a car if they sometimes do or, you know, deliveries that come to me to make my practice work. So I, I'm basically, you know, offsetting is considered, you know, like tithing at church, but there's certain things I can't avoid. I can't avoid traveling by air. You know, I mean, it'd be great to sail across like Greta, Greta did, but that's uh, three weeks in a sailboat. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, really I don't have three weeks in a sailboat every time I want to go somewhere to photograph something. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I, I also point out that it, on every any given minute on the planet today, there's six million people in the air. And if I'm one of the six million people, but I'm showing the scale of what we're doing, you know, in a way that 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 that. You know, we're not seeing that I'm feeling that that my the carbon that I am using uh, you know is to actually help us to help tell that story of us right. you know and, and so and I don't see another way to to do it I, I unless somebody has a good idea I don't I don't know how I, else to, yeah, I don't know ideas how to do. on a on a postcard please yeah yeah well look um this has been fascinating and educational and inspiring as well and um i really appreciate you giving me the time and chatting with me and thank you so much thanks that's a great conversation thanks Thanks.